Sometimes the very thing that gets in the way of spiritual growth is the picture we have in our minds of what a spiritual person looks like. Hey friends, I'm Mark Allen Shelsky, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 43. Purity and piety may get you nowhere. Today's podcast is sponsored by my YouTube channel. Seriously, did you know that this podcast is not only available in high quality audio delivered right to your favorite podcatcher app, it's also available in high quality full color video on YouTube. You don't have to imagine my facial expressions. When I have guests, you can see right into their living rooms. It's all right there in living color. Now most podcasts are only available as audio. Why? Because it's a lot of work and effort to do a video version. It's way more work than doing an audio podcast. So why do I go to all the trouble? Well, it's really simple. YouTube is one of the largest search engines when you count the number of searches. When people want to learn how to do something, YouTube is the first place they go. My whole purpose for this podcast is to help people learn how to develop a healthy inner life following the way of Jesus. Now, a bunch of those people are never going to search Christian podcasts in some podcast app, but they do come to YouTube and they search for practical spiritual insight. And I want to meet them there. I want to give them something better than the narrow, controlling, maybe even vindictive picture of God that many of them have been given. And now you, since you're already listening, you have a part you can play in this. The way YouTube works is really simple. YouTube's a Google property. Google knows a shocking amount about each of us. And when you watch a video on YouTube, especially when you like or comment on that video, YouTube assumes that people similar to you might like that video as well. So if you connect with this podcast, chances are there are folks already on YouTube who are thinking about the very same questions and issues you're thinking about. And if you let YouTube know that these episodes are helpful to you, then the algorithm will start recommending them to people a lot like you. You don't have to buy anything to be helpful. You don't even have to watch YouTube. You can still help because Google knows an awful lot about you. Do you want to help? It's very easy. First, head over to YouTube and find my channel, Mark Allen Shelsky. There's a link in the show notes. And when you're there, here's what we can do to make a difference. When one of these episodes is helpful for you, go find the episode on YouTube, like it. Even better, leave a comment. The more ways you engage a video, the higher the video ranks in YouTube's algorithm. And there are really only four things that YouTube tracks. Subscriptions, likes, comments, and shares. If you do two or three of those for each episode that you find helpful, that's exactly what YouTube is looking for to know whether these episodes are worth recommending to other people. Not only that, it gives me great feedback to know what kind of topics and conversations you are finding most useful. Now, right now, I've got a little more than 300 subscribers on YouTube. You did that. You people. Thank you so much for doing that. And the goal now is to get to 500. If you already watch YouTube, then you'll just be helping yourself because it means that you'll see whenever I have a new episode. And even if you don't watch videos on YouTube, you'll be helping other people because like I said, Google knows a scary amount of information about all of us and videos that you like will be shared with people a lot like you. That's all. That's what I wanted you to know. Let's get down to business. 
You want to know and experience God. I know you do. It's the only reason you're watching or listening to this podcast right now. You want to grow as a person. You want a sense of intimate connection with the divine. You believe or you suspect that the way of Jesus has something to say about this. That's why you're here. That's why I do this. But in order to grow in the way of Jesus, we have to unpack some ideas that we have about the spiritual life so that we can clear away some of the garbage that's getting in our way. One obstacle to growing spiritually, surprisingly, the picture we have in our minds about what a really spiritual person looks like. Yeah, our expectations of spirituality can actually get in the way of encountering Jesus. Here's what I mean. Many of us who grew up in church families were taught that God can't look upon sin. God's perfect. Sin, all the bad stuff we do, it offends God's holiness. And God is so holy that sin can't even be in God's presence. Did you ever hear that? So naturally it follows that if we want to know and experience God, then obviously we have to deal with the sin in our lives. So intimacy with God and spiritual growth gets tied up with purity. Many of us were also taught this verse of scripture. Is this familiar? If you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. That's in Jeremiah 29, 13. So naturally, we think that if we want to know and experience God, then we have to really, really want it. We have to really be committed. And maybe we aren't feeling connected to God, and so we think maybe that means we don't want it enough, and we know that commitment is demonstrated through an investment of time and effort, so intimacy with God and spiritual growth gets connected to piety. For many of us, these two things have come to be markers of the spiritual life. Purity, how well we are changing our behavior, and piety, how much time and effort we spend on religious or spiritual activities. And we have, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, come to believe that our ability to encounter God comes from these two things. Now, you might not think that's true of you. You might be one of millions of Christians who believe that we're saved by faith through grace alone. It's Jesus' life and death that covers our sin. Our purity is Jesus' purity. Our piety doesn't earn us anything. Well, that's all fine if that's your theology. But see, I've been doing this work a long time. I've heard a lot of people talk about their spiritual lives. And what I've learned is that for many of us, the theology we think we hold is different from the theology that is lodged deeply in our hearts. Here's a quick diagnostic test. If someone were to ask you, how are you doing spiritually? Or another version of that question is, where are you at with God right now? Or how's your faith? What kind of answer comes immediately, automatically to mind? I don't mean the constructed answer that carefully aligns with your theology. I mean your gut answer. The thing that you'd say without thinking. Is your answer something like, well, I know God loves me, but I feel like I'm off track in some areas I really need to deal with, and then you name off a string of behaviors that you're feeling guilty about? Or is your answer something like, well, I believe in God, I've trusted Jesus with my life, but I'm feeling distant, I probably need to spend more time, and then you list off some spiritual practice like prayer or reading the Bible or some other practice from your spiritual community? If your answer is anything like those, then deep inside, somewhere beneath the theology you think you hold, you really believe that you would be better able to encounter God 
if only you were more pure or more pious. Now, if we take that narrative to its logical conclusion, it means that deep in our minds, maybe even subconsciously, many of us have a mental picture of the kind of person who really knows God and who regularly experiences God's presence. That mental picture is our ideal holy person. What are they like? Well, they're unselfish and they're kind, and more often than not, they make the right choices, and they're active in their spiritual practices, and they spend lots of time reading the Bible and praying and serving others, whatever, right? We've got this mental picture of the ideal holy person. Whatever that picture is, it deeply impacts the way we think about our own spiritual lives. When we feel distant from God or need guidance or are struggling, how are we going to get back on track? Well, we think to ourselves, we pull up that picture of the ideal holy person and we compare ourselves. And we decide that we need to focus on getting rid of the bad behaviors or improving our discipline or reading the Bible or praying more, whatever the thing is that would make us look more like that. Now, there's certainly benefit to dealing with unhealthy, hurtful, sinful behaviors in our lives. No question about that. And a certain amount of focus and effort invested in spiritual practice can be incredibly helpful to us. I mean, building the right routines and habits is literally how we grow as people. The right practice can be crucial for healing, for processing trauma, for understanding our own inner life, for learning how to listen. And yet, this picture we have of that ideal holy person, that picture has consequences for us. Chasing that picture can lead us into a kind of religion that is driven and desperate. A spirituality where we're always wondering if we're doing enough. It can lead us into spiritual cynicism, where we start to feel like nothing we do even matters, so why bother doing anything? That mental image can also build a habit of judgment, where we're not only comparing ourselves to the picture, we're comparing all the people around us to the picture. Are they really that committed? Are they really a spiritual person? Are they just doing that for show? It's probably just hypocrisy. See, the belief that knowing and experiencing God is tied to our purity and piety can actually destroy our spiritual lives. So I'd like to propose a different narrative about experiencing God. This one comes from a very ancient story in Hebrew scripture, and it carries what I think are some profound observations about the spiritual life. The story features a man named Jacob. You can read the story for yourself in the book of Genesis, chapter 32. Actually, it expands over several chapters, but the scene I'm going to talk about is in chapter 32. At this point in the story, Jacob's returning home after being away from home for 20 years. He left alone by himself. Now he's coming back with a family. He left with nothing. Now he's coming back wealthy. But all is not well. His life story leading up to this point is complicated. It's full of conniving, deceit, manipulation. He betrayed his father. He lied to his brother. He had to leave home running for his life. He would never see his mom alive again. And then in this new life that he found elsewhere... He had to work really hard to build something for himself. He was lied to and cheated by his employer and his father-in-law. It cost him another seven years of work. He finally got the wife he wanted and loved, and he also got a wife he didn't want and didn't love. So even this new family was full of pain and complication. And then he cheated and deceived his father-in-law. And once again, he left behind him a web of damaged relationships. His life was a mess. So now Jacob is heading home. 
And along the way, he learns that Esau, his brother, is coming to meet him. Esau that he hasn't seen for 20 years. Esau that he robbed and humiliated. And Esau is coming with 400 men. 400! That's not a welcoming party. That's an army. Jacob is pretty sure Esau is coming to take revenge. And he's desperate. So he splits his entourage, his family, his servants, his flocks of animals into two groups, hoping, I think, to protect something. And he sends one party ahead to meet Esau with wave after wave of gifts, hoping to blunt Esau's anger before they actually meet face to face. And then, after he's done everything he can think of to manage or control the situation, night falls. And Jacob, feeling all the pressure and anxiety anyone would feel in this situation, heads off into the darkness to be alone with his thoughts. And there in the dark desert, someone approaches and attacks. It was dark, it was night, he couldn't see. Was it a spy working for Esau? Was it Esau himself or a bandit? Was it some kind of desert spirit? And Jacob wrestles for his life and the fight goes on and on. Hours pass, it's a deadlock. Neither can get the advantage. And then just before daybreak, just before the light would reveal who this attacker was, the stranger strikes Jacob hard, dislocating his hip. Now, the fight is over. Jacob is incapacitated, and the stranger will either kill him or escape. And in that moment of uncertainty, Jacob holds on. He has some intuition that this stranger is other, holy, maybe even divine. And he cries out, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now here's what you need to know about the situation. Jacob's not going to be able to hold on. Jacob has already lost this fight. He is injured. He's desperate. But he needs hope. He needs answers, wisdom, something. And so he cries out for a blessing. And the stranger responds. He asks Jacob for his name. And after Jacob replies, the stranger blesses him. The stranger gives him a new name. And just before leaving says, You have wrestled with God and prevailed. And the sun rises, the stranger is gone, and Jacob is left with a limp and a different name, and he realizes that in the darkness he encountered God. At this point, the scripture says, this is verse 30, Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. In this ancient story, Jacob meets God, he experiences God, he receives a blessing that changes the course of his life. But, and this is the crucial part, he doesn't come to all of that through purity. This is a flawed man. His very name, Jacob, it means heel grabber, one who takes what isn't his, a conniver, a supplanter. And he spends the whole first half of his life living up to that name, conning and cheating, deceiving, manipulating, anything he can think of to control the situation, to manipulate so that he can get what he thinks he needs to survive. His encounter with God doesn't happen because of his piety either. He doesn't exert great spiritual effort. He doesn't get this blessing because he gets up quietly every morning to read scripture and journal. Jacob didn't go into the darkness seeking God. He was scared. He didn't know what to do. The painful consequences of his actions were rolling down toward him, and he was desperate. So what does he do? What happens? What can this say to us about the spiritual life? Well, first, Jacob goes into the darkness and he wrestles. That's where he finds God, wrestling in the dark. But check this out. 
Even then, he didn't know it. Jacob didn't know he was wrestling God until after it had happened. Don't we sometimes believe that if God were to show up in our lives, we'd know? Don't we imagine that God's presence would be, I don't know, sparkly or shiny, or we'd feel special feelings, everything would be holy and peaceful? That's not what happened for Jacob. Through this whole dark night, Jacob thought he was fighting for his life. He thought he was wrestling an enemy. He didn't know it was God. I wonder if one of the reasons we have felt like God isn't present in our lives is because we're expecting God's presence to be something we recognize. Maybe God is with us in the darkness in a form that's uncomfortable. Second observation. The stranger asked for Jacob's name. Now, in our culture today, names are just sort of handy noises we use to refer to each other, you know, something so that we can get the right drink order at the coffee shop. But in ancient Hebrew culture, your name was powerful. Names were seen as a representation of your character. So when the stranger says, tell me your name, that's a lot like asking, tell me who you think you are. When Jacob says his name, he's literally saying in Hebrew, I am a heel grabber. This is who I am. I've connived and I've cheated. I've betrayed my family. I've left myself with nowhere else to go. Part of the blessing that God gives Jacob is a new name. That means God is giving Jacob a new story, a new way to see himself. But that can't happen until Jacob tells the truth about who he is. I suspect that the more we cling to the justifications and lies we hold about who we are and why we've done what we've done, the less we are able to perceive God's presence. God is truth. When we live in denial, we limit our ability to see and experience what is real. Third observation. In the darkness, Jacob wrestled with an enemy. As the sun started to rise and he was injured, it was clear that he had lost this battle. But Jacob refused to let go. He wouldn't stop wrestling. He wouldn't disengage. Now, we think of intimacy as a hug, an embrace, a gentle closeness. That's what we long for with people we care about and certainly what we long for with God. But wrestling is close as well. Asking why, demanding answers, staying in the fight, that's also intimacy. Maybe one of the reasons we have felt like God isn't present is because after we prayed a little while and didn't get an answer or didn't get that peaceful, comfortable feeling that we long for, we just, we just stopped, we gave up, we disengaged. We just assumed that because things felt uncomfortable, we must be alone and began to live as if that was the truth. Maybe the path to knowing and experiencing God isn't through purity and piety at all, or at least not always through those things. Maybe we come to encounter God in the darkness, in discomfort, in admitting the painful truth of our self-justification. Maybe intimacy with God sometimes looks like fighting and wrestling and not letting go. See, this narrative about encountering God, in some ways it's more difficult to accept. Right? If encountering God is related to our purity or our piety, well, that's something we can control. We know what steps to take. Right? We know what deficits we can fix. If we do X, then God will do Y. That's the system, right? This ancient story about Jacob suggests that, in many ways, knowing and experiencing God is outside of our control. 
God shows up in unexpected places. God is present in painful things. Interacting with God might actually leave us with a limp. But at the same time, this narrative is so encouraging and hopeful to me. Jacob didn't have to be perfect. God wasn't waiting until Jacob had accumulated the right number of hours of Bible study and prayer and church attendance. God wasn't checking to see if Jacob was part of the right group or the right church or the right political party. Jacob was neither pure nor pious. Jacob was uncertain. Jacob was in a lot of pain. And when Jacob was struggling in the night, God was with him. When Jacob stood at the threshold between his painful past and an uncertain future, God attacked. Certainly, there are times when the right path for us is to face or deal with sin or hurtful habits or wounds in our lives. Yeah. And there are also times when building new habits and incorporating new spiritual practices will be helpful to our growth and character development. But these things are not ways we control God. God is beyond our control, beyond our expectations. I suspect this means that many times God is going to be present in our lives in ways we simply don't recognize, or in ways that are uncomfortable, maybe even painful. It's a strange encouragement to say that, I know. But here's what I think we sometimes need to hear. Wrestling with God is intimacy, even if it doesn't feel like it. It's not a failure or a weakness or a lack of faith. In our wrestling, in the night, in our painful and uncertain places, God is there and can help us see our true identity and even learn a new story about who we are. All we bring to the table is our need and our attempt to not let go. May you embrace wrestling in the dark and seeing God in your pain and letting God give you a new story about who you are. May we stop trying to control God with our purity and our piety and instead just keep holding on. Thanks for listening. Notes for today's episode, any links I've mentioned are at markallenshelsky.com forward slash TAW043. Did that connect with your heart? Did you sense wisdom there? Then subscribe to my email list. Two emails a month at most, links to my writing, my next podcast episode, books that I recommend, and more. Plus, I'm giving away a little book that I wrote to anyone who subscribes called The Anchor Prayer, a prayer and practice for remaining grounded in a chaotic world. It's about two hours of reading for most people. It's about a spiritual practice that has been deeply helpful for me in this difficult, confusing, uncertain year. Maybe you'll find it helpful too. Subscribe, get the book at www.markoptin.com. Until next time, remember, in this one present moment, even if the moment is dark and painful, you are loved, you are known, and you are not alone.